Well, good morning, Prescott Cornerstone. It is so great to be back with you guys and to those who are watching or listening online. Uh, great to be a part of this with you as well. Uh, today, we're going to continue the series we began last week, this idea of didn't see it coming. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to get those out. We're in the Old Testament. Uh, if you were here last week, hopefully it's not a surprise where we're going. We're back in the book of Ruth, chapter 2. So if you want to get your spot there, uh, you'll be ready in just a moment. And we're talking about Something that I think each and every one of us, no matter your age, no matter your background, no matter where your life has gone, uh, we can relate with. Of those moments where you think something's going to go one way and it goes another way. And you go, wow, I, I, I just wasn't prepared for that. I didn't see that coming, right? This idea of how do we react to those moments. Now, I want you just to, to take a self-assessment. How do you do in these moments? Now, some of us, we're good at it, right? Like you can be flexible, you can adjust, you think quickly, you can react. It's, it's not a problem. Others of us, and you know who you are, you're like, I don't do well at this. If, you know, if I'm not ready for it, I have a really hard time and, and, and kind of anywhere in between that. I, I was reminded of my own reaction to this uh, about a year ago. We were given tickets to this incredible uh, comedy show. Uh, this guy named Sebastian Maniscalco came into Phoenix, and I don't know if you know who this is, but big time comedian. And we were given seats that were like truly incredible seats. I mean, like in the front section of this venue that probably seats 5,000 people. And so we were given these seats, and I'm like, this is going to be an incredible show. And so we get there early. It's my wife and I, and I am so excited. We had seen this comedian before, but I'm just so excited to be a part of this and to have the great seats. Well, we're up front and we're a part of it. And, and, you know, before the show, they try to get everybody engaged in what's going on. Now, if you ever been to a sporting event and they do the kiss cam, you know, that's just like to try to like play on the awkwardness of the audience and get everybody kind of warmed up. Well, Sebastian did something similar, but he called it the Sebastian cam. And so what they would do is they would get the camera and they would zoom in on someone. And rather than trying to get two people to kiss, what they would do is try to get you to, to impersonate Sebastian and, and impersonate the faces that he makes. Now, in, in case you're like, I don't know who we're talking about. What, what, are we, what are we even talking about? This is what Sebastian looks like. And this is the face he does. Like, this is just like his trademark look. Have you ever seen uh, anything that he's done? He's making this face in most of his jokes. So the Sebastian cam was literally, the camera would, would like zoom in on you, and then it was your turn. You have to make a face as good as you can, like Sebastian, and then the 5,000 people in the room would applaud, right? And if you did a really good job, you get some laughs, you get a little cheer, you know, it was really good, and, and it would pan around to other people. Now, here's what you got to understand about me. I'm an introvert. Uh, I, I don't, you know, typically like social situations in which something's going to get sprung on me. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, wow, I am so glad that I'm not going to be on this because there's 5,000 people here. And then I have this really uncomfortable realization. I figure out where we're sitting. And again, we were in like the front section of this venue. And then I, I, I do this quick check of like, where are the cameras coming from where that they're using for this Sebastian cam. And I realized they're all on the front of the stage, like right in front of me. And I'm like, oh no, this, this could be really bad. Like we are in the prime seats to like get a, a direct front angle of our faces. And you know, if I was in my normal seats in the back, I'd be totally fine. But in these seats, we're in trouble. So I have to come up with a game plan because I do not want to get on the screen and have to do a Sebastian face in front of 5,000 strangers, right? I'm not comfortable with that. So I, I come up with a quick strategy. 
Strategy number one, uh, I realized there's a guy next to me, very outgoing. He's there for a good time. Before the show even starts, I think he was three or four drinks in. So I realized this guy wants to be on this screen. He's the perfect guy. I just got to give them enough time to find him. Because if it's me or this guy, for sure you're going to go with this guy. He's going to do a way better job. They'll pick him. I just got to make sure they see him. So I'm like, all right, how do I, how do I last long enough to make sure they, they do that? So my second strategy is I'm just going to stare at my wife. Because if I'm looking at my wife who's sitting next to me, then if the camera came to me, it's only going to get the side of my face. And who's going to put someone on screen? It's not even looking, right? That doesn't make any sense. So I figure out, all right, I'm gonna, this is going to be great. I've got my strategy. I'm going to look at Michelle. I'm going to give him long enough to find this dude. All will be great. And, and so, you know, at some point, Michelle looks at me. She's like, what are you doing? Why are you staring at me? And I'm like, right, I don't want to be on the screen. So here's my, and I explain it to her. I'm like, just act normal, act normal, right? You know, so I'm staring at her and she's looking at the screen, you know, and I mean, this was probably only, I don't know, two to three minutes that this thing went on. It felt like this was going on for eternity, right? And so I'm just staring at her. I'm like, come on, this, this plan's got to work. And then my wife says, one of the worst things she has ever said to me in our entire marriage. She says, Jeremy, you're on camera. <laughs> sure enough, I turned and I'm on the screen. And what do you do now, right? You're on screen. They found me. They know what they've done. They found the one guy who's trying to avoid the camera and they put me on camera. And so what do you do? When suddenly you are thrust in front of 5,000 strangers on a Sebastian cam, you do the Sebastian face, right? So I do my best job. I'm trying, and I get, you know, mild applause, right? It's not great, but I, you know, oh, great. And, and then I'm like, okay, I did it. Move on. Except they didn't. It was like they realized we found something here. Like this guy's very uncomfortable on camera, so they just stayed on me. Now what do you do? I've already done the face. I'm not doing it again. Like what, I had to like entertain you now. Like get off of me. Go to someone else. But the camera's still on me. It was on me for so long that my wife had a chance to get her phone out of her pocket, pull up the camera app, and take a photo of me on screen. And this is what I look like just sitting there. Now, you may be thinking, Jeremy, you're smiling in that photo. It doesn't look so bad. I am dying on the inside, okay? I may be smiling here, but this is the awkward, <laughs> why am I still on this screen? Like, I have no idea, right? But what do you do? I, I don't know about you, but my life seems to be full of these moments. It just seems to happen to me where I go like, oh, okay, it's going to work out this way, and it doesn't. Okay, I hope this thing plays out. It won't. You know, like life just plays out that way, and this is humorous. But I've had some other things that were a bit of a doozy. Oh, I didn't see that coming. I wasn't prepared for that, right? So what do we do when these things happen? And I love this series, and I told Scott I love this whole premise uh, of this and so we're going to look at, uh, again, we're going to continue the story of Ruth, of, of what do we do when life plays out. Now, I want to give you a little preface. Before we get into chapter 2, I'm going to give you Jeremy's hot take on the book of Ruth, okay? This is just my take on this. You're welcome to disagree with me. Uh, but here's how I understand the book of Ruth. Number one, I'm going to argue that Naomi, if you were here last week, you're going to know some of these names. Naomi is actually the main character of the story. 
It's a hot take because you're going, Jeremy, the book's not named after her. I'm aware. But Naomi is the only person throughout the entire book, if you read it in its its entirety, who's going to transform, who's going to have character growth, character development. In in the context of a story, that's usually who your most dynamic characters are. That's Naomi. From the opening pages to the end, Naomi is on a journey. Now, today we're going to look at, in particular in chapter 2, Ruth and something that Ruth is going to do. So Ruth is definitely the focus of chapter 2, but throughout the story, I actually think it's Naomi. Now, what I'm going to plead with you, and this is just as friends, right? Uh, please do not make Boaz the main, sto- the main character of this story. Now, Boaz is going to be introduced in just a few moments. Uh, Boaz is who we often go, yes, this is the Jesus figure in the story, and we center on Boaz. I'm going to encourage you not to do that because I think you miss the beauty of the story of Ruth if you focus it on the wrong person. So that's just my hot take. You can disregard it if, you, if it's not helpful. All right, let's go to Ruth chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 1 if you're going to follow along, or I have it here on the screen. And we're going to set up our story. Now, again, we got the premise, the context last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you, go online, watch that one. That's going to set the stage for this. But then we find, okay, after that life uh, upending moment has happened, after everything has fallen apart it didn't play out the way they saw now they got to figure out how do we put these pieces back together so now there was a wealthy and influential man in bethlehem named boaz who was a relative of naomi's husband elimelech one day ruth the moabite said to naomi let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. So we, chapter one is all about the disaster, what has happened to them. And then chapter two, you see what they're going to do about it. Now, I want you to notice that Ruth isn't waiting around, just hoping things get better right? She doesn't turn to Netflix and ice cream and Uber Eats and go, this is going to make me feel better. She decides I've got to do something. And so she comes up with this very basic idea. And if you didn't know where the story was going, you would think that there's nothing in these verses that is going to change the story of of these women. Because this is not a, a huge thing to do. It's not a profound thing to do. It's just a very basic, hey, I could go out tomorrow. I could go in the fields. Like, that's just something that I could do. She decides, I'm going to do the next thing that comes to my mind. I'm going to focus on that. So disaster has has overtaken us. What's one thing I could do today? That's what I'm going to focus on. Now, this idea is actually a very popular idea, and we actually talk about it in a lot of different contexts. It reminds me of a letter written uh, by Carl Jung, and he was— kind of helping someone deal with their own crisis. And he said it like this. He was a Swiss psychiatrist. He says, when one is in a mess like you are, I I love when you write someone a letter like, you're in a mess, right? You know you're in a mess. When one is in a mess like you are, one must do the next thing with diligence and devotion. Everyone has to do it the hard way and always with the next, the littlest, and the hardest things. Right? So that's like his advice to someone who's, I, I'm going through it right now. How do I get out of it? Well, you've you got to find the next thing that you can do. You've got to focus on that. 
Now, this may sound vaguely familiar. Now, you may be going, I'm not real familiar with Carl Jung, but this idea kind of sounds like something. Uh, that's because it was made popular by a movie that you've no doubt seen, especially if you have kids. Uh, anyone uh, a fan of Frozen 2? Right? Frozen 2, Anna tells us, just do the next right thing. She was channeling her inner Carl Jung, right? Of, of this is how you deal with a problem. When you're overwhelmed, just do the next thing and sing about it, right? And if you put it to song, everything feels better. But here's what I find fascinating. That Ruth is going to go and do the next right thing she can think of. All right, I'll go out and I'll go and, and, and you know, with the harvesters. But I want you to notice how she does it. Because what the text points out here, I, I think, is worth us reflecting on. If you go and you go, well, how does she do it? Notice what she looks for. She looks for kindness. And in fact, the verse we just read, verse 2, says this. Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. I, I'm going to go out and I'm just going to look. And I'm going to see if anyone would be kind to me. This is an interesting uh, way to do the next thing. Hey, life has been hard for us. We're down and out. We're overwhelmed. I'm just going to go see if anyone would be kind to me. Now, this is a direct connection to a passage you looked at last week. And if you were here last week, in, in chapter 1, verse 8, it says this, but on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's home, notice this line, this is Naomi saying it to, to Ruth, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. So Naomi says to Ruth, may the Lord reward you for the kindness you have shown me. You fast forward one chapter, and that's exactly what is happening. Is Ruth is looking for kindness. She's looking to see, God, will you re respond in kind? Will you show me kindness as I have shown to Naomi? And I, and I love this. And I was, I was thinking about this. I, I, I thought of this statement. We shouldn't expect kindness, but we can look for it. Like, we don't need to expect it. And, and in fact, you might say, well, it's a little naive to expect the world to be kind to you. Sure, I've lived long enough to see that's true. But should we stop looking for it? Like, you ever notice how you get to a point where you can become so jaded, so hurt, so bitter, uh, life can be hard, and you go, I'm not even going to expect kindness from anyone. I'm not even going to look for kindness from anyone. And you can be, actually become a different type of person that, that doesn't experience kindness because you don't even look for it. You don't even see it. You don't even think there's space for it. But I think we should be the ones that always our hearts are soft enough, no matter what pain you've experienced, no matter what hurt, no matter how things have played out differently than you envisioned, we should be the ones that are looking for kindness. We should be the ones that are, are, are centering on this. And I love one of the things that Scott said last week, that God answers prayers with people. And this is kindness lived out, right? When, when you pray, you go, God, I need you. I, I need something. And all of a sudden, someone shows up. Someone extends that kindness to you. And you go, wow, this is incredible. I love when God answers prayers with people. This is how kindness plays out in, in real life. But again, as we saw in chapter 1, if you push away kindness, if you stop looking for kindness, if you think this is a world where kindness doesn't work, you're going to miss out on the people that God's going to bring into your life, the people that God is going to surround you with. And the more I thought about kindness, the more I realized this is central to Christianity itself. 
If you and I are going to call ourselves Christians, that we are the ones who follow Jesus Christ, this should be an element that is at the core of who we are as believers. You may go, why? It seems like that's overstated. And the reason why is because kindness is how God treats us. I don't know what your view of God is. I don't know if you kind of picture more of an angry God and, and he's got, you know, kind of the Zeus, the firebolt, and he's ready to, to extend his wrath to you. Or, or maybe you have a much softer version of God. But what the scriptures show us is a God that looks like Jesus and a God that is incredibly kind to us. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says it like this. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? How does God want to turn us around when we're stuck in the wrong thing, when we're, we're you know, mired into mistakes and failures and we're going down the wrong road? What does God do? Does he throw a lightning bolt at us like Zeus? No, Paul says he's kind. He extends kindness to us. And that is the way that God brings us back through kindness. So when we look at a story like the story of, of Ruth and Naomi that, that has this, this kindness theme woven throughout, what we're actually seeing is a way to interact with God, a way to interact with the very center of our faith. And if God is kind to us, I don't think it's a stretch to say this is how he expects us to treat others. That if, if we primarily experience the kindness of God, and this is the way God desires to motivate us, God, God desires to turn us around when we're going the other direction, could this not be the way we extend love to others through kindness? I mean, how would that change the world if, if Christians were known as the most kind people you will ever meet? I, I think it would be pretty profound. Well, if we jump down to verse 8, uh, again, there's verses in between here just for the sake of time. I'll, I'll kind of jump around a little bit. Verse 8, we find out the response to what Ruth is going to go do. So now Boaz has entered the picture. Boaz went over and he said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? Again, notice how much this is woven in the story. She asked, I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. This is this kindness circle coming fully around. And all of a sudden she is experiencing this. And so Ruth's act of loyalty in chapter 1 is now being rewarded, as Naomi hoped that it would, is now being rewarded back with kindness. And one of the things that this shows us in chapter 2 and throughout this story is that we're not responsible for the outcomes of our story. Now, I I just need you to sit on that for a second, because it's one of those things we go, yeah, yeah, I got it. But we don't realize this. We don't live like this. You are not responsible for the outcome of your story. Which means if you're sitting here today, or you're listening, or you're watching online, you're going, how did I get here? Maybe it's not your fault. Maybe you did everything right. 
I don't know. But we're not responsible. We like to think we are. We like to think, if I just do all the right things, if I just play these cards right, it will play out exactly the way I want it to, except you end up in a story like this. I, I didn't see that coming, right? And, and so what we have to realize is rather than thinking we can control the outcome, here's what we find in the scriptures. All we're responsible is to be faithful. Hey, well, God, what are you asking me to do? I'm going to be faithful. And sometimes that's going to work out and play out in the way that we want. And sometimes it won't. And, and what we are able to do is to release the outcomes of that and go, God, we're just going to be faithful to you because we believe that ultimately this story belongs to you. Ultimately, my life belongs to you. And, and I would suggest that when you develop that as a theology that you live with, all of a sudden it frees you up to just be faithful in the moment to God. There's an author named Carolyn Custis James and she wrote a book about the book of Ruth called The Gospel of Ruth. Uh, again, the, the Ruth book is not a gospel. It's not in the New Testament, but this book is called that. And she says this about the story. I think it's so great. She says, we are not the masters of our own destinies. We are called to plan and strategize, to work and live active lives, to attempt things that are beyond us, and tackle challenges that stretch us to the limit. Yet, the outcome of our efforts, even our ability to exert ourselves, is always in God's hands. And I think there's a balance there. We, we are always to do that next right thing, that next faithful thing. Okay, God, what can I do this moment? While acknowledging, God, this is your story. God, ultimately, you are going to be the one to, to, to see where this is going to go. Now, this is one of the reasons why the book of Ruth is such a compelling story. Because there's no way Ruth's actions could lead to where the story goes. You, it doesn't connect. You don't go, well, obviously she did X, Y, and Z, which produced X, Y, and Z. And the whole thing makes sense. It doesn't play out like that. You see Ruth and you go, wow, this story played out with what she did? Like, that's kind of bizarre. It's because God was the one ultimately involved in this story. And it's true for you and I as well. In, in describing the, the narrative of the, the book of Ruth, the, the philosopher Charles Taylor has described it using this phrase. It's an alternative social reality. I love that phrase to describe the entire book of Ruth. An alternative social reality. Well, if things don't play out the way you think they would, why? Because there's another silent character involved. It's the person of God. That God is involved in the story. And so the book of Ruth doesn't play out chapter by chapter the way you would envision it because it's not just the characters on the page. There, there's another person that is, is involved in this. And, and this is what happens when you and I trust God with the outcomes of our life. Even when things are hard. Even when things are, are, are tough. And you go, I, I didn't see that one coming. You go, no, I, can, I can still trust the outcome to God. And I can figure out how do I react faithfully in this moment. And so a question I want to have for you, and I think each of us should wrestle with this, is what would it look like for you to be faithful to God in this moment? Now you got to think about what are you going through in this moment? Some of you are going through some marriage challenges, and maybe your, your, your temptation is to look at your spouse and to say, you're the problem, you're the issue, you fix this, and then we'll be fine. Well, what would it look like for you? To be faithful to God in this moment, even if your, your marriage is something you didn't see coming. 
Some of you have a relationship with a child that is, is a tension point for you, and you're going, man, I'm just so frustrated. What would it look like for you to be faithful to God in this moment? Some of you with your career, you're dealing with some big things that have not played out the way you thought, and you're wondering, what do I do next? And, and what if you just simplify it and God, how do I be faithful to you in this moment? See, we can, we can make it so much more complicated. I gotta, I gotta figure this whole story out. What if we just said, God, what do you want me to do right now? Like this week. Like, God, what could I do this week to be faithful to you with the situation that I'm in right now? And I'd suggest some of you, you know what it is. You're just not doing it. I mean, if, if, if I can say that, right? Like some of you, you're like, yeah, I know what it would look like to be faithful to God. You just haven't done it. And maybe for you, you're like, I don't know why. I'd have to, you know, swallow my pride to do that thing. I'd have to admit I was wrong to do that thing. I, I would have to, to extend kindness to someone in a way that I don't want to, that they don't deserve. Right? I don't know what that, 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 that point is for you to go. I have to get over that hurdle in order to, you know, to, to extend that. But what would it look like for you to be faithful to God in this moment? And will you actually do it? When I was a kid, we were on a family vacation, and uh, I had been dealing with some medical stuff, and, and so there's a lot going on, and I was on this pain medicine, and, and the pain medicine was just not sitting well with me. And so I was constantly feeling sick uh, with this medication. And, and so I remember we were driving through the desert one time. I think we were in somewhere in Texas. Uh, on this family vacation, and I'm in the back seat, and my stomach is just killing me. And so finally I said, Dad, can you pull over? I do not feel good. I think I'm going to have to throw up. And he's like, yeah, okay. So he pulls off. I mean, we are literally in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, it's me and cactuses and dirt. And I, I just never forget. I, like, walk over, and I'm like, oh, my stomach hurts so bad. And I just, I just like, did one of these. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to throw up. I'm going to feel better, and it'll be great. And the heat's baking down on me, and it's, it's not fun. But I couldn't throw up. You ever have this moment where you want to, but you can't? Uh, sorry, it's gross. Uh, so I'm there. I'm having this whole thing, and I'm a kid, and I'm like, I just don't feel good, but nothing's happening. And so I'm just out there, and a few minutes go by, and I'm, I'm just down there. I, I feel like I need to throw up, but nothing's happening, and I'm just miserable. I'm hot. Uh, I don't feel good, all of that, right? Well, I'm out there for a while. My family's in the car with the air conditioning. You know, they're, they're fine. Uh, meanwhile, I'm over there, and I'll never forget, I'm down here like this. I hear a car door open. I look over, and I see my dad walking over to me. I'm like, all right, he's going to make it, he's going to make it better. You know, dad, dads have certain powers. They can just come in and, and he can make it feel better. And so I'm, I'm like sitting there, I'm ready, uh, you know, for this profound wisdom. How's my dad going to help me navigate this moment? And I'll never forget what he said to me next. <clears throat> I'm, I'm a grown man now and I can still tell you this verbatim. He walks over to me, he leans down next to me and he says, son, I need you to throw up or get back in the car gets up, walks back to the car. And I'll never forget that moment. It's not what I wanted to hear, for sure. I didn't like any warm fuzzies in that moment. You know, it wasn't it. Uh, but I thought, okay, yeah, but he's right. You know, like, these are my two options. I can throw up or I can get back in the car. Like, this in-between spot is not really sustainable. And so I remember I, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to throw up. And I get back in the car, and I just decided, it's like weird, but I'm like, I'm not going to throw up. Like, for whatever reason. And I didn't throw up that day. And it was a bizarre thing. But I'll never forget that moment of sometimes I think we're just stuck on the side of the road feeling bad for ourselves. And, and I don't know if you can relate. I, I get to that place rather easily in my life where I'm just like, 
I don't feel good. I, something needs to happen. I don't know. It's hot. I'm tired. I, you know, and, and I can just stay there until someone just says, hey, here's, here's your options. You can do this or you can do this, but why don't you choose one? So for you today, like, I, I don't know wh- where you're stuck. I don't know what tension you're dealing with. I don't know where you're like, yeah, but what if you just decided to be faithful to God? All right, God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take a step. I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to trust you more. I'm going to extend kindness to that person. I'm going to, whatever that is for you, what if you just said, yeah, I'll, I'll actually do it? What would happen in your life? How would your story be different? Because in the, the, the book of Ruth, we get to verse 12, and this is so great. So Boaz gives her kindness, and then he says this, and we'll, we'll kind of focus it on this. He says, may the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I love this perspective. After all these things, Boaz says to Ruth, may the Lord, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. What did she do? Did she do this huge act of, uh, of bravery? No, she just went out to the fields the next day because it was something that she could do. And Boaz points out that Ruth is actually seeking refuge, not in him, not in that community, but with God. And Boaz is aware. This is not like a Boaz thing. This is like you trying to find refuge in God, and I just happen to be the person God's going to use to be a part of this story. Now, if you fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus says something that beautifully parallels this. And I love the imagery of how Jesus says it. Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children to uh, gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. Now, this is bizarre for a number of reasons. Number one, this is Jesus using motherly image. Uh, there's a number of scriptures in, in the Bible where God refers to God as a female and female imagery. So if you're catching, this is all female imagery, which is a, a little concerning for most people. I'm fine with it. But this is Jesus saying, as a chick, I want to like bring you under you know, my, my wing here. Like, come on in. I want to shelter you. I want to protect you. I want you to find refuge in me, but you wouldn't do it. But you kept yourself out. I wanted to bring you in, but you said no. And so Boaz is like understanding this concept way before it's time of like, hey, actually, Ruth, I think you're looking for shelter, this refuge in God. And I can be the person that can connect this for you. And I would say that while people are usually involved in the kindness, ultimately we're always looking for it from God. God is the source of our refuge. It's always going to be found. And God will use people to do it. To again quote Carolyn Custis James, she says, first and foremost, God is the true hero of the story. No matter how captivating the other characters may be, our top priority is to discover what the Bible reveals about God. So as we get in the book of Ruth, the, the point is to go, God, what does this teach us about you? And Boaz gave us a huge look behind the curtain that when life has played out like we didn't expect and when things are hard and, and when all that is working out, what we ultimately seek is refuge in God. And God will find people to carry it out. So let me give you a few next steps. You're going, okay, how do I, how do I really internalize this this week? Number one, read Ruth chapter two. Okay, Scott said to read chapter one last week. It felt like, hey, let's keep it going. Uh, Read chapter two, dive into this and go, okay, I see where this whole narrative is going. Number two, look for kindness around you. 
And I'll qualify it, both from God and from others. What if we were the ones looking for it? Hey, we're just going to go look for kindness. We're going to be the ones that expect kindness, that make room for kindness, because this is the kind of world we want to live in. We want to bring heaven to earth a little bit, and so we're going to look for kindness around us. And maybe right now you're going, my life has been so hard, this has been so overwhelming, this has been so depleting, I get it. Don't stop looking for kindness from people. There are going to be people in this community that would overwhelm you with their kindness if you would look for it. If you'd be open to it. And God is a God of kindness. The scriptures are constantly telling us about this. What if we kept our eyes open going, God, how are you want to be kind to me in this moment? Number three, find ways to practice kindness to others. Right? So not, now we're just going to look for it. We're going to be the ones proactively going, all right, I'm going to do some kind things today. Why? Because that's how God treats me. So I'm going to go pay it forward, right? I'm going to go be the one that is constantly being kind to others. What if we were shaped like an entire community that was just going around looking for ways to be kind? Not just to the people gathered here, but to everybody you interact with. Where people walked away from an encounter with you and went, that was unusually kind. What, what was that? Like this would literally change the world. Finally, focus on your next act of faithfulness. Channel your frozen two all the way, right? Just do the next right thing. What would it look like with your situation? And this would be different for every single one of us. What would it look like for you to focus on your next act of faithfulness? Say, all right, God, you control the results ultimately, but I'm going to do the next thing that I can do. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this incredible story of Ruth. We thank you for a a story of hope in the midst of loss and pain and things not playing out the way we envisioned. And God, we, we can relate with this story because it's our story as well. That we have those moments where we didn't see it coming. We didn't know how to respond. We didn't know what to do next. And yet may we be the people who choose to focus on kindness. We choose to look for it because our hearts are still soft and choose to be the ones to extend it for others. My God, I don't know the pain and the journey and the story of everyone here today and everyone who's watching and listening, but I know that you are a God of kindness and you invite us to trust you in a bigger story that if we would just be faithful to the next thing in front of us, that, that you've got the rest. So God, may we have the courage just to simplify whatever choices are before us and have the courage to do the next thing that you're asking us to do. And may you literally change us from the inside out as we become a community and a culture of kindness. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.